Welcome to the Rising Sea Voices podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Here you will discover and learn from the new generation of coastal, estuarine, and ocean scientists and engineers. My name is Felicia Meta-Short, and I am the Rising Sea Voices host. Before starting today's episode, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I live and work in Vancouver, Washington. This land has been cared for and called home by the Chinook Indian Nation, the Cowlitz Indian Tribe, and the Chinookan, Tainapam, and Klikitat peoples from time immemorial. In the 1800s, the, the Tainapam Indians were relocated to the Cowlitz Reservation, where their descendants still live today, while many of the present-day descendants of the Klikitat people are part of the Yakama Nation. The land where I live holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance for its original stewards. However, there is still no federal acknowledgement of the Chinook as an Indian tribe, and the Kalis Indian tribe had to wait until 2000 to be officially recognized by the federal government. I recognize and continually support and advocate for the sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond. Despite centuries of colonial theft and violence, this is still indigenous land. It will always be indigenous land. Indigenous people are not relics of the past, and their talents and knowledge are worth celebrating. Today, my guest is Corey Kane. Corey currently is in a postdoc fellowship with Oregon State University and Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, ODFW. She helps carry out ODFW marine research programs, ecological monitoring, and research work, in addition to acting as a liaison between Oregon State University's Marine Studies Initiative and ODFW. She received her PhD from Washington State University, where she focused on coral reef community dynamics between shallow and mesophilic coral ecosystems. She obtained her bachelor's and master's degrees in aquatic biology and marine ecology from the University of California, Santa Barbara. And actually, Corey and I were PhD students together at Washington State University. Hi, Corey. How are you doing? Hello, I'm doing good. I'm happy to be part of your podcast. Thanks, and thank you for coming here. We're like actually in my little kitchen right now. And uh, Corey is like the first guest I have in person, so that's pretty exciting. Definitely. It seems <laughs> odd to now be face-to-face -face with someone after, what, 18 months of video interviews and video conversations. So it feels a little alarming. It's like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> so, Yeah. Great to see you. Also, I don't get the chance to see you a lot, so that's a treat. And um, so usually when I have my guest, what I ask first is for you to share a little of your personal and you know professional story. What basically makes you decide to go this route to you know decide to do this field of studies? Um, could be anything that, I don't know, any experience in your life or any people you met. So if you can share that a little about you. Well, I thought my story was somewhat unique until I caught up on your podcast and realized <laughs> last week's guest was also from the Midwest and somehow has made this venture into ocean sciences. So I guess it's not that strange for a Midwesterner, but um, I originally grew up in Illinois in the middle of cornfields with no ocean for about, I think the closest ocean was like 1500 or 2000 miles away. But I was an avid watcher of nature shows on TV, and luckily both my parents had been 
scuba divers, but hung up their fins long before I was born. But I think just some of their tales and, you know, discovering some of their gear in the basement when I was growing up just stoked this interest in me that to this day is has never gone away. So I think from the time I was like five or six, I informed my parents that I was going to become a marine biologist. At that point, I thought a marine biologist was a killer whale or dolphin trainer at SeaWorld <laughs> because that was the only place that I'd ever seen the ocean was a, a family trip to SeaWorld. So even going in through college and realizing this was going to be my career path, I started at the University of California, Santa Barbara, under a psychology degree, uh, thinking that I was still going to be some sort of killer whale trainer, and that was going to be my path in life. Now I know much better, and that those are not optimal conditions, but at the point of zoos and aquariums of those nature being the only exposure that I had, it was a pretty instrumental period in my life. But now I've transitioned from the Midwest and the flatlands to oceans and mountains. And I don't think I could ever go back. So it's been a, a, in one sense, sort of a straight line of that. I kind of knew this is what I wanted to do my entire life. But I think still to this day, I don't know exactly what it is that I want to do. Um, <laughs> every position that I have or postdoc that I have kind of influences me in ways that I didn't expect and feel like my career always takes a little bit of a turn with every sort of degree that I get or position that I've held. So I feel like it's still an evolution in process, but uh, it's been a, a pretty fantastic adventure so far. No, I agree. I feel the same way. Like you never know what kind of opportunities you're going to have, what kind of people you're going to meet as well. And what is interesting too, like you mentioned, like, yeah, my first guest, I think was also from yeah, the Midwest. You wanted also to be a trainer as well, I think, for SeaWorld. It's so funny. I think because you don't, we don't know anything yeah. else. Like, that's that's the ocean to us. So. No, I totally get it. And it's funny because also my last um, guest, she used to work with horses also before getting into marine biology. Yeah. And it's what you've been doing too, right? Yeah, that was what I call my former career. I grew up riding horses and I actually rode horses and trained professionally all throughout high school. And starting in college, I would come home on every break and and still work with clients. And so in some sense, I've just transitioned from, you know, studying and training horses to now studying and training things that live under the water, <laughs> which in my opinion are much easier to work with. They're much less smelly. So that makes it nice. And uh, I don't get bitten as often, even <laughs> though I'm in the universe of sharks now. Uh, knock on wood, I have have not been able to experience a shark bite like I had been bitten by horses many times. So, yeah. so to me, that's those are all good things. No, I agree. I got bit by a horse too. And it's funny, like I know a couple of marine biologists that used to work with horses or ride horses so it's kind of there is a weird connection there yeah yeah I don't know what it is I think you know it all comes down to just a connection to nature mm -hmm. and an interest in things other that are not human so I feel like no matter what my career has been and it's you know moved from learning to scuba dive in lakes and rivers and then getting to the ocean and diving kelp forests and then spending 15 years studying you know, life in the tropics, and now I'm back into sort of the temperate kelp forest realm. But it doesn't matter the environment. It's just that 
you know, that connection and that ability to observe things and, and try and understand the world. I think that is the common denominator among all of us. No, it's true. I agree. Yeah. I think it was my skip too. Um, to get in the woods and after I discovered this scuba, di scuba diving <laughs> and then that was my new love yeah no I agree and um, can you tell us a little more about so you were in California for a little while so you did your bachelor and your master there um, can you tell us a little about your research that you did during that time yeah I started basically I had no idea what schools were good at marine biology. So I just started looking for schools in the ocean. And I did my first two years at a community college just so I could save money and get all of my prerequisites out of the way. And one of my professors just happened to be like, you should look into these California schools. Like my daughter goes to Berkeley and there's a, this other place called Santa Barbara that's supposed to be good. And I looked and saw, you know, got some information from Santa Barbara and saw that there's ocean on two sides of the campus. And that was it for me. <laughs> so, so from day one, when I got there, my goal was to do whatever I had to do to be able to work, you know, in and under the ocean. And so I immediately started looking at labs that did ocean related work. And mm -hmm. so I think throughout the time that I was an undergrad, I worked for three different labs. And basically, it was just a way to get somebody else to pay for me to go scuba diving. Um, so I thought that was like, the coolest thing ever at that point of being an undergrad being like wait people will pay you to do this stuff like i don't understand that but so i started working in uh what they call the crab lab and doing work off of oil platforms and looking at basically muscle growth in varied conditions so off santa barbara there are a number of active oil platforms which turns out are great experimental sites because they're active, they're not fished, so you can't get within, I think, 200 yards of them. So they're pretty pristine. Um, I thought it was going to be terrible, but it's probably some of the best diving I've ever done. And Yeah, you don't think about that when you think of like, yeah, like a oil platform. Oh, it's going to be this kind of like mini yeah, marine reserve. Yeah, it's going to be terrible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was beautiful and, you know, so many giant things I had never seen before, like scallops the size of your head. And so that really got me hooked. And then from there, I figured I was going to see what other labs also had diving activities. So I worked a little bit with the kelp forest lab, doing some kelp forest monitoring, and then ended up in the lab of what became my master's advisors, Rush Schmidt and Sally Holbrook. And they did a combination of work off of Santa Cruz Island and the Channel Islands. So doing some diving surveys off the Channel Islands. And then they also, in the summertime, went to this beautiful place that I don't know why anybody would stay back and not go there. Uh, but they did a number of years of research in Morea, French Polynesia. I'm so jealous. Yeah, <laughs> it's the French connection. I know it is. But yeah. Uh, yeah, once I saw that, I was like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta get in good with this lab and do all the temperate diving, and then maybe I'll get a chance to do the tropical diving. And so it paid off, and uh, they took me after I had worked two years doing, you know, kind of proving that I was worthy doing undergraduate diving and working in their lab, uh, doing all sorts of invertebrate sorting and basically anything to just keep me involved in science and learning. 
Uh, I spent my first summer in Morea and that was just kind of hooked me <laughs> in pretty deep. So I think the kelp forest is still my, my first love and probably still some of my best dives, but uh, it's pretty easy to be mesmerized by places like French Polynesia. So I ended up staying in and working full-time for them for a year or two. And I knew I wanted to go to grad school, but I just had a huge case of imposter syndrome in Santa Barbara. Um, you know, all of the, the people that I worked with and the grad students that I worked for were all from Ivy League schools and they all seemed just so smart and I did not feel like I was in that league. And so I didn't think that I would be good enough to go get a PhD. And so I figured I would go get a master's degree somewhere, but I didn't know where that would be because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And after working for my advisors for a year or two, uh, they were like, well, why don't you just do it with us? Like, it seems like you like this stuff. We have funding for you to continue doing work in Maria. So if you just want to do a master's degree, why don't you just continue on that track? So that was kind of a no brainer for me. So ended up staying an extra two years and completing my master's work with um, fieldwork activities in Maria, which is pretty fantastic. <laughs> that sounds pretty nice yeah and also you know i i agree like cape forest i'd love to dive in cape forest maybe one day maybe one day but the it's definitely a completely completely different environment but i can see how when you're in the tropics it's like all the colors and it's like the little you know islands bursting with colors so, so clarity visibility is much better yeah and water is kind of better too i mean warmer too so yeah exactly that helps a lot you don't need like super thick wetsuit and you feel like a little like i don't know one cork floating around and you have to put a lot of weight on your on yourself so you can actually be underwater um i'm curious what kind of research um what were your research questions like what did you study when you were in moria yeah, when I started out as an undergrad, I really had no idea because this was literally a whole new world for me. Right. And I was just excited to do anything. And then the more experience that I got and the more people that I worked with, I kind of honed in, you know, what my true passion is. And my, I think, true passion in the extent of it was fish. Mm -hmm. So... I just, you know, everything else just didn't compare to watching fish swim around and and I'm just kind of a geek at heart. So I love just watching their antics and, and seeing what they do. And so I guess without knowing sort of what the field was that I was going to be moving into, it was just sort of de facto like being kind of an amateur naturalist. And my, you know, it turned out that my real interests were in understanding, you know, species habitat relationships and just kind of fundamental ecology questions. Like, why do things live where they do? And why do things do what they do? And so and for my master's degree, my advisors were working on a couple species of damsel fishes. So they're interested in, you know, population dynamics and sort of, you know, what determines their population? What are the limits to their population sizes? And whether it's, you know, interspecific competition or various things. And that was kind of interested in me, but I was really more interested just in 
sort of the behaviors of the fish themselves, not necessarily the numbers of them. Right. So I landed on studying this somewhat obscure fish that I think is one of the most charismatic fish on the reef. For some reason, it's only about three or four inches long. They're pretty small. It's called the archai hawkfish. But they're like, I think they kind of are these little tiny fishes that have huge Napoleon complexes. <laughs> so they're these little tiny things, but they are beasts. Like they decide that they have a little territory and they will chase off. I've seen them chase off like three or four foot sharks. Oh, wow. Just swimming after them and biting them and then settling back on their little coral and like watching the world go by. So they're total punks on the reef. And I, <laughs> I completely just like fell for them because you could sit and watch them for hours and be like, you're going to get eaten. What are you doing? And so that just drove the natural curiosity of like, what do these things do? How do they have a role sort of in the ecosystem? And, you know, finding out how they interact with other things kind of determines to some extent, if these little hawkfish are here, then the damselfish that my advisors study would sort of either hunker down or they'd peace out and go to another coral because right. like, even though they were smaller and solitary, they were just these like aggressive little punks that weren't <laughs> going to take no for an answer. So I ended up doing a, a suite of work with them, just, you know, trying to understand their behaviors, trying to understand, you know, what regulates their presence or their abundance in the, in the system and then how they interact with, with other fish and may determine sort of presence or abundance of other things as well. So it was pretty sweet, I mean, to get, to be able to spend like six plus hours underwater every day, just laying on the sand, watching these little hawkfish go about their daily existence. I can't think of a better, better project, <laughs> but I try to catch it. It's like, oh, it's really hard work, you know, <laughs> like hours underwater and you get cold and, you know, I'm wearing two or three wetsuits when the water is 80 degrees because you're not <laughs> moving for hours and end. But in the end, it's like, you, you can't get a better gig than just, you know, watching the world go by while you're sitting underwater. Yeah. So. No, that's pretty awesome. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and tell us, so what the story about those little fish then? Yeah. So they're, they have such a much more complex existence than I thought. Mm. So they definitely, you know, have some subdivisions between males and females and males have these little territories and they defend them to death, basically. And so they decide and like not every coral is to say the same to them because you'll see them perched on different corals and, mm -hmm. and doing their little territorial behavior, which essentially is like a fish version of a push up. Uh, but they do these like fast push ups underwater and trying to scare the fish away. And if that didn't scare them away for some reason, why would a fish doing a push-up <laughs> scare another fish away? I don't know. But then they'd literally take off and, and go chase them no matter what it was. But, and so you'd see them on different corals, like, oh, they just have a, a territory, right? You right. know, but everything's the same within that territory. And it turns out like they're very specific on what lives in their territory and that there's really one prized coral that has a certain size and even just a certain gap size between the branches that wow. they prefer over everything else. So they're really picky. Yeah, so they're really picky. And so they have that kind of central thing and then they have a territory around it, which they will defend. But really when it comes down to it, like that coral is kind of their their crown royale <laughs> of, of, 
areas. So, and I don't know necessarily what it is. They don't seem like they don't seem to hide in it very much. The other hawkfish aren't really attracted to it, but, yeah. but yeah, for some reason they just, they have that niche and, and that's what they go for. So it was very fun, like manipulating different coral sizes and right. different gap sizes of things and then trying to make them like watch them and see what they'd pick. And every time it was just a very certain range huh. of like width in between coral branches that they were going after. So it was super funny. And I was like, well, it doesn't matter if it's dead or alive. Like, it, right. is it really? And yeah, it's just like, or maybe a different species. Even? Yeah. Every yeah. time mm -hmm. like, you're like, okay, it's this. And then it's like, well, is it really this? <laughs> or so it's kind of like a decision tree that I was forcing them to every revel revelation then brought up like, okay, well, what is it about this thing? So, and for me, I think it's such just that, you know, general curiosity mm -hmm. of a quest, like, how picky are things like you know what what can we get down to and what is it really that that are driving sort of the yeah. interest levels of different fishes so so that was kind of my masters in a nutshell it was just a lot of manipulating corals and a lot of watching hawkfish but i think even going back today i was like i could go back and do that in a heartbeat <laughs> i miss those nice calm days underwater in clear water so now i'm diving in oregon and if I can see the hand in front of my face, I'm really excited. So. Yeah, it's a different story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. And it's funny when you describe this little fish going after something, you know, like a shark. <laughs> it reminded me of my cat. <laughs> <laughs> because I have a cat who basically um, attacks dogs and Corey knows that. But this cat is basically really territorial. And yeah, he doesn't care. It yeah, you just go out and attack dogs. Anyways, that was a side story that made me think <laughs> yeah. of that. And um, so you were in California then for a little while and you decided to do your PhD. Did you go after your master? Did you write, you know, to Washington State University or did you take a little break in between? No, I <clears throat> actually, when I finished my master's thought, that's it. Like, I'm never going for a PhD. I saw my lab mates that were doing PhDs and, you know, everyone around me and still had that bit of an imposter syndrome because Santa Barbara doesn't really admit that many master's students. It's more the exception than the rule. So in my lab, we had, you know, six or eight graduate students and I was the only master's student. Oh, wow. um, there was one before me, but she was like finishing up right as I started. And I didn't know any other master's students, like every other lab uh, or all the other graduate students that I had coursework with and stuff, they were all PhD students. So mm. I felt a little bit out of my league to say the least of going when you're going up with all these, these people that seemed like they had so much more experience and so much more credentials than I did. And so I finished and was like, yeah, academia, academia is not, not for me. So what else is there? It's like, I really had no idea. Um, Santa Barbara is a pretty research heavy school and it's kind of the mentality of like academia or die. So I was definitely the black sheep of being like, I don't know, I don't know if this is my route. Like, <laughs> I don't think this is my jam. So I definitely didn't go for my PhD then. And I swore that I would never do a PhD. <laughs> that was it for me. So after that, I lucked out and I had applied for a couple jobs just across the gamut of things, some nonprofit, you know, organizations and some state agencies. 
And I ended up getting a job with a nonprofit organization called Reef Check, which is basically science adjacent, but they have established protocols for citizen science monitoring. So they have two divisions. I was a program manager for the tropical division, but then they also had a California division that was just starting up doing, trying to engage citizen scientists into doing kelp force monitoring. So I was really fortunate in that, you know, I, I got to still work with, you know, science and scientists and, you know, working on established, like rigorous scientific protocols, but it was a new endeavor for me working sort of with a citizen component in the non-academic world. And I think it was a really good eye-opening experience that, you know, more than just academic scientists can do research and and that, you know, given proper training and, and everything else, they can actually do really good, high quality research. So it was a really cool experience just to kind of get my feet wet and see for the first time something outside of academia that was still helping with this larger goal of, you know, monitoring and, and conservation. So I worked there for a couple of years and then um, I met a boy, as is always the story, who ended up doing some graduate work in Hawaii. And so I decided after a short period of time, I was like, Hawaii sounds pretty good. I'm a marine biologist. I could get a job there. Yeah, so, and you had some experience so you know, in Haiti. So yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Like, why not? Um, but somehow it miraculously worked out and I ended up getting a really awesome job in Hawaii. Um, so for four years, I was the state research coordinator for Papahanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument, which basically at that time was the largest marine protected area in the United States and one of the largest ones in the world. And now I think through some finagling and expanding of boundaries, it's back to being one of the largest again. But it was an amazing place and an amazing opportunity. I went in there, you know, so naive with no, no real understanding or background of culture or, you know, associations to the land. I grew up in the Midwest, you know, there's nothing there, <laughs> you know, like there was, I think, maybe three non-white people in my entire high school, you know, so this is really one of my first chance to see culture and living culture, not just sort of a historical context of it. And again, like a huge life learning experience, a huge opportunity for me, and just, you know, completely brought in my eyes to, to how different cultures do things. And then particularly, you know, native cultures, and people associated to the lands. And, and I was really privileged to be able to work with a number of native Hawaiian groups who were very accepting of my naivete in, in all things um, culturally related. And so they gently gave me training and information. Um, I say that somewhat with a grin because my first meeting and interaction with a native Hawaiian cultural working group, I mean, I was literally on the islands for less than two months. And sitting in a meeting of like 40, 50 people and a woman stands up in, in no sort of 
glossy terms uh, instructed me that I needed to get my howly butt in nice terms, which is sort of a, can be a generic term for a white person, can be a derogatory term, depending on tone, as in multiple cultures, but uh, stared straight at me and told me to, to take my howly butt and my Western science back on a plane with me to the mainland. Ouch. Yeah, and so I kind of slunk way down in my chair and uh, tried not to cry in front of everyone. And then, you know, from that point forward, just made it a sort of imperative for me to learn and to engage and to do that with deference and not just be like, I don't understand what the problem is. <laughs> so, right. so that was great. And I think you know, probably one of the most transformative experiences in my career is learning about culture and connection to lands. And that's really changed my outlook on thoughts about management and conservation moving forward. So hopefully for the rest of my career, no matter where I am, I can kind of take those lessons with me. Yeah, no, that's great. And I lived in Hawaii or so, I mean, not for that long, just for a couple of years. So I, I can see that I don't have, you know, as well, as much as an immersive, let's say, experience, because you had to work with different groups, me being a student still at you know, an international school, it was, yeah. I wish I had more interaction with like people in Hawaii, but yeah, I'm glad you had this experience. Even if at first it was, you know, <laughs> uncomfortable, but you learned so much out of it that, and it's great that you went past that, you know, you get out of your comfort zone and you're like, I'm here to learn. So just didn't climb up and after say, no, I'm right. So exactly. And I think that's what, you know, most of the animosity now with most is just that expectation of people like, you know, in the last year or two, a lot more people have been, you know, having to learn about white privilege and kind of as a white person checking yourself for things. And I guess I was fortunate to sort of learn that, you know, a little bit earlier, but not in the case of privilege and, and just in the case of like, what has sort of my, you know, not necessarily me, but people sort of, of my ancestry, like what has the, what have those interactions been like? Cause you know, in textbooks in school, it's all like, we conquered this, you know, we brought, you know, education to, you know, multiple people and, you know, we're expanding the ingenuity aspect and then, you know, realizing the other side of that is so glossed over. And, you know, the Western way of managing lands and actually managing coastal resources is not great. Like the Hawaiians had it figured out. Right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting now to see, after time is starting to see shifts back towards those more connection to the land and the sea and, the realization that you need to manage things at a local level that, you know, at a high level of management, it just doesn't work. So that was really cool to see. And, and, you know, the more I learned about Hawaiian culture and the more I learned about how they managed resources and, and how they, you know, were scientists without technically using the word science, but just how in tune they were with their environment and the observations that they made and, you know, the ability to know when things spawn and where they go. And so at this time of year, they're spawning. So this is closed off to everyone. And, you know, just 
thousands of years of learning how to manage this. And then we've managed to wipe it out in 50. <laughs> so, so yeah. it's been a very interesting, you know, sort of acknowledgement and experience on that end. And, and hopefully now, you know, I'm able to take sort of that knowledge and, and bring it forward with me wherever I go. Yeah. No, I agree. I remember even being there, like just the notion of watershed management. It was, they've been doing that this whole time, you know, from the mountain to the sea. Yeah. And for us, it took a while to realize, oh yeah, everything is connected. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's such a novel thing now to be like, wait, things that we do on land can impact the ocean. And really, when you think about it, it's like, well, of course, like how, how obtuse are we to think that these things aren't connected, you know, and it's been really cool too. I've in my current position, I've been able to start working a little bit with the Celeste tribe and have had sort of a, a quote unquote spokeswoman for that tribe join some of our, our monthly calls. And it's just such an interesting, you know, difference in viewpoints and it's one that, you know, I wish more people would have is that a lot of people view it's like it's their right to have access to things to be able to fish or hunt or things and, you know, sort of whether it's Native Hawaiians or sort of, you know, Indigenous people in the Northwest, it's they view it not as a right, but as a responsibility and an obligation that they have to these systems. Um, and so it was just interesting, like she summed it up so simply like that. It's like, wow, yeah, that's, that explains, you know, why we have so many issues with management because everybody assumes the right to things and not sort of taking seriously that obligation part. So it's been really great. And I've been really excited seeing that kind of come back around and, and gaining more traction through the last decade or so. Yeah. No, for sure. And and going back to Hawaii makes me think also how places that people think, oh, because no one is living there, we can do whatever we want. And in Hawaii too, when you have the monument, they have still this strong connection to those areas and some are still fished or there's like this heritage. And I think you went also to do some research on some cruises, right? On the, is it the Northwestern Islands? Yeah. Yeah, I was fortunate we did, the Northwesterns are so remote, I think, you know, from Honolulu to the furthest atoll, Kure Atoll is almost 2000 miles. So by the time you get to Midway Atoll and Kure Atoll, you're, you're technically closer to Japan than you are to mainland US or to Hawaii. So it's a huge long expanse. And so we have, you know, 30 to 45 day research cruises to go and it seems like such a long time, but given the amount of area, we can only get, you know, maybe to half or less of the main islands or atolls and only there for like a, a couple days at a time. So <clears throat> really limited opportunities, but man, what a cool place. Like I've never been anywhere that has basically never been inhabited, you know, permanently. So a couple of the islands had, you know, native wine pilgrimages for cultural ceremonies and other things that were really important. But then, you know, after that, it's kind of this huge expanse and it's so transparent when you get in the water of just things not being afraid of you. And, you know, like how curious 
things are and what in a more intact ecosystem is like, you know, I had a huge fear of sharks and I'd never seen a shark until I went up there. And like one of my first dives, there was like 200 sharks around <laughs> just like, okay, if I don't die now, then, you know, maybe <laughs> sharks aren't that terrible. Um, and so being able, you know, we'd spend at least one or two cruises a, a summer up there for, I think I did that for about four or five years. So got, a chance, but also on that, you know, it was really eye-opening on that responsibility aspect of, I get to stand on a beach that doesn't have land for 2000 miles or so. And I see Safeway plastic shopping bags, right. you know, you see the craziest stuff washing up and you see albatross, these big, beautiful seabirds, you know, nesting and it's unbelievable to see it. And then you see chicks dying from plastic ingestion. So it's this huge sort of dichotomy of pristine, beautiful, natural place. And then you can't go anywhere without seeing a human footprint on it. So it was really engaging to see a lot of that sort of up close and personal. <laughs> yes. yeah. But I mean, in the end, like some of those dives you know, you just have to sit back and check yourself and realize, like, especially when we started diving to some of the deeper depths, that there literally has never been a person in this location before, likely ever. Uh, like, we are seeing these reefs for the first time. And I think we all kind of had different moments of the course of that first cruise when we were doing some of the the more technical diving of just this like overwhelming realization. It's like, no one's ever been here before. Like we are literally astronauts <laughs> in the ocean and seeing things for the first time. And it was just so cool. And it's such a, you know, awe-inspiring journey. And then I also had the opportunity to go with a submersible cruise and do some deep sea work, which I had never really done before. And so it was kind of that same thing of just being like, none of these places We've seen like there were multiple species and things that we ended up collecting being new to science. You're just like, oh, I don't think we've ever seen that before. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> like multiple in the course of like one dive, we're collecting all these things that are new to science. It's like, man, this is like the new frontier. I right. mean, it's That's insane. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so cool. Just this like realm of discovery that, you know, I think peaks every inner child's interest like i instantly go back to you know being five or six and watching national geographic or getting the nat geo magazines you know and flipping through them and seeing the you know antarctic explorers or <laughs> or you know people going you know into space being like oh wow like how could you ever do that and then realizing it's like technically i am one of those people <laughs> like i am going to places that no one has been before and seeing things that no one has seen before it's just so surreal. It's it like, is. Who would have thought this kid from the cornfields would be <laughs> doing this stuff now? It's like beyond belief. But I have to say, it's been a pretty privileged ride so far. <laughs> so. And what is interesting, though, it's after being there for a couple of years, even more, I said four or five years. Yeah. And after saying, mm, academia is not for me. <laughs> Uh, you had a change of heart. Famous last words, right? <laughs> I feel like that's, you know, the path less taken. Most 
most of the people that I was in grad school with when I was a master's student, like they knew what they wanted and they were going to be faculty. And largely every single one of those people are faculty at universities today. And then there was me just being like, I don't know what I want to do, but I don't think I'm doing that. And like, I would never be able to do something like that. And then after spending four or five years in Hawaii and doing all this really cool work and then realizing that nobody's doing this and there's so many questions that are unanswered and it just, you know, stoked that inner curiosity again that I couldn't, couldn't avoid anymore. It's like, well, I guess I'm going back to grad school because I guess I have to be the one to answer those questions. So sure, why not? <laughs> so then it was a matter of like, okay, do I stay in Hawaii? Where else do I go? Like, how do I even go about doing this? And yeah, it was such a funny, like, when you talk about, you know, never anticipating life, like I never even really heard of the Northwest before. I had no idea. And while I was sitting chit-chatting with a colleague of mine, they're like, hey, there's this guy that used to be a faculty member in Hawaii and now he's somewhere in Washington, but like, you should check him out and you should see. It's like, okay, there's like, I think his students still do work on Big Island and instantly the wheels started rolling being like, I mean, I could just do research on Big Island. Like that place seems to have like all of the things that I need for the questions that I wanted to ask. So after that, it was just a matter of like, okay, we're, we're going to find a way to do this and, and we're going to go back to Hawaii, but not live in Hawaii. So, which to me is perfect because I'm not a warm weather person. Like <laughs> my terrestrial body is not equipped for hot, humid climates. So I'm much more adapted to like the Northwest as far as living, but then, you know, how can you get a better gig of spending topside in the Northwest roaming through forests and then head over to Hawaii for the summers and spend your summer underwater, you know, on yeah. the side of a giant volcano. So like, that sounds so good. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I was like, you know, I mean, these are difficult life decisions that I had to make. So I know. And that, yeah. So you ended up joining us. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty excited about that. Too bad that I couldn't join you for some dives because yeah, physically I cannot, but yeah, at least I could see your photos and videos and hear your <laughs> yeah. stories because they're always stories when you do field work. Um, so that was pretty amazing. And um, I feel like you're still tangentially because it's like part of the brain trust when, <laughs> you know, your lab mates. And so it's like you live vicariously. Like, I feel like I have, you know, sort of a little bit of a background in social science just because, you know, I'd hear like all your discussions and so if your survey work and that was like, oh, I get it. I'm like, I know about this stuff now. <laughs> I feel like it's the same. Like, even though you weren't physically there, you're still part of that journey. It's true. I can follow discussions like, oh, yeah, you know, totally. I know about that. You know, <laughs> coral reefs and, you know, like fish, uh, you know, coral reef, like habitat relationships. And yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and actually talking about that, um, so what did you, what were your research questions and what did you study when you went to Big Island? Yeah, I, I feel like I want to blame my NOAA colleagues when <laughs> I was working for the monument because they're the ones who really got me into this technical diving gig and sort of this like underwater cowboy of exploring places that have never been you know, explored before and just relating that back to connections. So 
when I was still working for the monument, a couple of the guys that I work with, like one of them is just this world renowned ichthyologist, you know, and deep diver. And so I'd pinch myself. It's like, I, like I know him. And then I got the opportunity to dive with him. And then of course, like I totally like fell flat on my face or the equivalent to like the first dive with him. Everything went wrong. You know, <laughs> it was like the most embarrassing dive I've ever had. But uh, he was a super nice guy. And so with conversations with, you know, him and a couple other colleagues, it was just, you know, seeing that we're all just fish nerds. And so when we get back up from days diving and, you know, the conversation all night long on the ship would be still about the fish and, oh man, did you see this? And did you see that? And so we started getting on to these, like, what are patterns that we're seeing? Because kind of we're seeing everything for the first time and, and the guys that we're working with are taxonomists, so they're interested in species, but, you know, not necessarily what they're doing down there. And so my colleague from NOAA and I were the ecologists that are like, oh, I wonder why, like, why is this? And they're like, we don't care. We just, you know, accumulating new species <laughs> on our dives. And so, you know, we started with the first questions, like the further north that we were going, the more we were only seeing endemic fishes. Huh. And so it was this trade-off between these, you know, most of the time in, in tropical waters, you don't see a whole lot of in endemic fishes because like, you know, the reproductive strategies are broadcast spawners and, you know, they can sort of get everywhere on ocean currents. But Hawaii had, you know, a relatively high rate of endemism, which was somewhere around like 25% of the species were endemic. But as we were moving further and further north, we were seeing those numbers just like you know, tangentially observing, just being like ticking up, ticking up, ticking up. Wow. And so we started collecting data on it and found that by the time we got up to like the northern atolls, almost 100% of the fish that we were seeing were endemic. Oh, wow. So they live there nowhere else in the world. It's like, well, you know, so then it starts, you know, getting my ecology brain. It's like, well, why is that? Well, what is happening? Well, what else is happening? <laughs> you know, and and I am not as intrepid of a technical diver as the rest of my team was. Um, I would begrudgingly go down to the depths, but I was more interested in this sort of like middle zone where it's like, where, you know, the shallow reef fish start petering out, right? As the deeper reef fish start coming up, like nobody, nobody was talking about that area and everybody just wanted to go as deep as they could to find the new things. And so I felt like it was kind of this forgotten zone that got bypassed so i was like well like what's there but you know back to that basic naturalist questions like how does this you know how does this look what's different what's the same what determines you know the lower limits of things and you know when we're taught in school it's like usually everything is upper limits for ocean stuff you know like intertidal how much air can you tolerate you know, or how much warm water can you tolerate or things kind of like that. But um, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion of like, what's lower limits. And just from, you know, our initial observations, it wasn't the same. So some, some families of fishes, we'd find, you know, extending from, you know, five meters of water down to 56 or more, not a problem. And then other ones petered out by like 30 meters. And it's like, I don't understand. So that really got me into it. And especially given Hawaii and all of sort of the near shore management issues and overfishing. And for me, just kind of still having that applied 
sort of science in the back of my head. Like I need to do something that helps, you know, that can help better inform things. And so it sort of got me on the, the war path to be like, you know, it asks these questions and be like, oh, this, this could be interesting or it could be this. And, and all the sort of deep sea tech people be like, Ugh, you know, it's too shallow, whatever. And it's like, well, why isn't, okay, well then I guess I got to do it myself. <laughs> so, so much of my sugar and I was like, I guess that means I'm going back to school again. So, um, but it was good because at that point, you know, I had enough years of experience between leaving grad school and undergrad and kind of a pretty clear idea of of what was more important to me as far as conceptually and then a really much greater idea of like how to do field work and and how to design questions and how to think about things you know from being able to work sort of in management realms for five or six years so i kind of really came back to grad school like on a single track like i'm going to study these things and like understand like this sort of unknown understudied environment and how that relates to like shallow water fish management or, you know, population dynamics or things. Because right about the time I was thinking about going back to school, there was, you know, is there always this controversy with like fishing versus restrictions? Hawaii is really unique in that they really don't have any regulations for recreational fishing. Um, and they were trying to employ some, and of course there's huge backlash and, you know, there's, it's so complicated because it's a mix of culture and heritage and then, you know, rights and access and, you know, all of these things mixed in. And so there started to be a tactic by the commercial fishing industry trying to keep preventing regulations from coming in being like, oh, well, these researchers are finding all this newer, deeper habitat and we aren't fishing there and so it's by default this refuge for all the fish that we want to fish so basically like we can fish as much as we want in the shallow waters because like the fish from the deep will replenish the shallow and that started taking off in like statewide meetings and then it started making it up to like national meetings and then, you know, we would get questions from legislators saying, well, you know, we don't really need to do this because this deep area that you found has, you know, that that'll save us, essentially. Right. And we're all just being like, wait a minute here. Like, I don't think that's the case. You know, there's it's like the, what we were seeing deep, like that, that story wasn't lining up. It's like, yeah, we're seeing lots of things, but they're not things that people eat. You know, they're tiny little fishes that aren't fished in the shallows. And so that was really my, my focus of going back to grad school is this question of like, what transcends into the deeper boundaries? What's the likelihood that these could support, you know, shallow populations and that this could be a feasible management strategy or not. And so that's really what guided most of my, my PhD work was just trying to understand and characterize this kind of middle environment and then trying to, you know, figure out applications to how fish are being managed and, and whether this could be a source, a source of additional population structure or not. Right. So, so it's fun. It was definitely, you know, 10 PhDs worth of information to collect. So luckily, you know, I had pretty good established relationships in Hawaii and, 
So I called on, you know, some geneticists to help with some genetics work and some oceanographers to help with like oceanography and plankton style stuff. I mean, I had this huge laundry list of things that I wanted to do. And of course, you know, anyone who goes to grad school is like, you start off with this idea. And then, you know, by the time you finish, it's, if it even somewhat resembles the idea that you started off with, you're doing pretty well. So, you know, my initial thing was like, oh, I'm going to scuba dive and then I'm going to technical dive. Then we're going to get the submersibles to come in. I'm going to do this entire swath top to bottom. And I was like, that stuff costs a lot of money. And I could not bring in that money. So like the depths kept getting shortened up and the questions kept getting refined. But I feel like it was, you know, there's never any end to the questions. And, And once you get in and think you solved one, there's seven more questions. So... I think my biggest issue with graduate school is containing myself to be like, no, let's slate that. Let's try and give that to someone else. Like we had a master's student that came into the lab and was like, I can't do this piece. Like, do you want this chunk of things? <laughs> Trying to right. shovel off some, some questions. Cause it's like, I want these answered, but I don't have the capacity. So. And at some point also you need to graduate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, you know, I was really lucky in funding and, and getting scholarships and fellowships and that kind of stuff. But at some point, you know, the clock starts ticking and being like, yeah, I probably shouldn't try and use this as my long-term strategy to just get money and be a graduate student for a decade. (laughs) And also something that is interesting about how I, um, like the fish, but the commercial fisheries are not only for eating the fish, but there is also the aquarium trade, correct? So that I think was one of the big issue as well. Yeah, that was something that I didn't really know that much about when I worked with a monument, because obviously that's not an issue um, that we have in the Northwesterns. And it it's not a huge issue on Oahu, but on the Big Island, their largest you know commercial fishery is aquarium fish. And it's like hugely controversial. I didn't realize that, but that's one thing that like, you know, 50% of our lab kind of worked on that aquarium fish trade. And so I got roped into a little bit of it, um, but mine was sort of less on the actual industry and more just, you know, for me personally, like a knowledge gain of what do they do? Is it as terrible as people make it out to be? You know, there's another student in our lab that was kind of working directly. So I had opportunities to go out with them and see, and actually forged some really great relationships with aquarium fishers. And, you know, I think when you're a grad student, you're, you're forced to do some ingenuity as far as funding. So I ended up working out a work trade program with a commercial aquarium fisher in that like I'd go out for a day or two and like watch him and help him you know, see how he collects aquarium fish and, and what he does. And of course, you know, I'm a nerd. I was just like, how do you do this? You know, like, it's such a puzzle. And it's something that not everyone can be as good at. And the really good guys are not destroying the reef because they understand, like, you destroy the reef, no more baby fish live there, no more income capacity. So it was really interesting to sit and watch them and, like, see how much they had to be able to read the environment and understand behavior of fish. And so I instantly got hooked at being like, oh my gosh, you have to be like a behavior sleuth because each species has a different behavior and, and you know, they're going to do one species will run one way and another will run the other way. And 
you have to chase them and you know it's not really efficient if you're chasing things all over the place so it was really cool so i would go down and watch him and and you know like help out with some things here and there and then as a trade one or two days a week he would give me access to his boat and basically like i had a chartered vessel um and so we get to go to these super awesome sites that were places that i couldn't normally go on my little like 13 foot rubber boat um <laughs> that is too scared to go that far from shore or that long of a distance so i was able to get so much more research and then he would tag along with me while i did my research dives and yeah. you know we had some really lively discussions topside of being like there were so many more fish. Why didn't you count those? Why didn't you include them in that survey? And so it was great. So it was kind of like the spokesperson for understanding what we're doing. You know, they're like, we don't trust scientists because like we know there's more fish out there than what they present. And so it's like by actually having him come with me and help out and do things and like shadow me, it was like this, you know, learning moment for both of us where it's like I gain a better insight into how they do things they can gain a better insight on how we do things, sort of bridge that gap. So after that, then he would like go back and talk with his aquarium fishing buddies and be like, no, this is not what that means when they do this graph or this thing. I was like, whew, okay. <laughs> no, that's great. And I thought you can say on your end, hey, you can work with commercial fishermen and then they know a lot that we don't know because they are on the water. Yeah, the exactly. Time. So it was like the best, I think one of the best relationships that I had there was working with a commercial aquarium fisherman and then also working with like a, a recreational dive operation. So it's like they're going out every day and taking people for tours, like tourism dives. So, you know, it's those people that are on the water every day in very different capacities, but nonetheless, they're both there. And so I relied so much on them for figuring out like where would be good research sites you know what would be good spots like i had criteria of like okay i need you know a reef topography that kind of looks like this i need these depths you know in this range i need to have like these kinds of fish in this range and like instantly at the dive shop and the commercial aquarium fishers would like have a list of 10 or 15 sites and they mostly lined up between each ones and you're like wow okay okay <laughs> So, you know, rather than me just going blindly and trying to find things like it is such a much more efficient process. And like you said, like they're out there every day. Like, I think as scientists or managers, we take for granted the sort of knowledge that fishermen have in knowledge, not only of like the, the species that they fish, but the habitats that they live in you know, the areas where they're going to be abundant or not abundant. And, you know, they think of it in terms of catching, but you know, when you sit back and be like, okay, there's like fish habitat relationships or there's, you know, behavioral preferences for certain things and they know those things, right. you know? So it's like, why start from ground zero? <laughs> Get a leg up. That'll save me like two years of research. <laughs> so see, it was great. I mean, I never would have thought in a million years that I'd be like sitting on a commercial aquarium fishing boat or like helping, you know, collect tuna or something for a day, you know, and so just like, just see the process. And, you know, I, I kind of, as an academic, you kind of have this commercial fisherman idea in your head of like, oh, they just take everything and they don't care. And it's like that stigma is really when you start actually meeting people and, and understanding you can break those down 
pretty easily. So it's like, okay, I got to learn to check myself as well. And hopefully the, you know, aquarium fishermen that I worked with learn to check themselves and their, you know, views of scientists and, and that kind of thing. So it was good. It's like when I left, I kind of handed off my relationship with my aquarium fisherman to a geneticist colleague. And now like he contracts the aquarium fisherman to collect genetic samples for them. This is like, this would have taken us three years to try and collect and you did it in like four dives because it's like he knows where they all are he knows how to catch them you know and the beauty of that is like they catch them non-lethally whereas like you know the geneticist would just spear them and then just take a fin clip you know or it's like the aquarium fisherman can collect them in a net and then take their fin clip and then let them go so right. I was like, this is better for everyone. <laughs> it's like my inner fish nerd of being like, I just want to see them on the reef. <laughs> so, and I but. guess what is awesome, because after you brought all this experience with you when you did your fellowship now, I imagine. And I don't know if you can tell us a little more about that, because now you're working with so many different groups related to the reserves in Oregon, the marine reserves. Yeah, it's funny. It's like... I think, you know, the more opportunities you have, and I try and tell people, you know, graduate students or younger people, like, don't get set in one thing or one environment or one lab your entire life. It's like, the more experience you get, the more you realize how similar everything is. And it doesn't really matter what the location is. So we had the same problems in Morea that we had in Hawaii that, you know, we have in marine protected areas in Oregon. They're completely different environments. So I think I was really fortunate in having that experience and sort of lessons learned and how to work with different groups of people and and different levels and different ways of communicating and collecting information that i was able in this fellowship to kind of hit the ground running and oregon is really unique in that well not unique in a state-funded agency in which you're like you know overtasked and underfunded. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, a whole three employees, you know, officially designated to, you know, monitoring all of the sort of eco ecological side of marine reserves for the entire state. Um, but it was really, you know, they're trying to do so much with so little and they have so many limitations, not only, you know, staff and personnel and budget, everything else. The Oregon coast is crazy to work on. Uh, it is not an inviting environment whatsoever. And then, you know, tack on an additional difficulty of ODFNW banned scuba diving for their employees. So now they're tasked with doing monitoring in which they can't operate. So that initially was a large part of my job is like lead up the monitoring sort of scuba based program Kind of take it over from the previous fellow and it's this kind of hodgepodge quasi citizen science group um that's you know some graduate students and some people from the aquarium and then just some people who have you know have a passion for diving and have found their path into scientific diving we have like a dive shop owner that's really engaged and so you know it's great being able to rely all the way back on my reef check experience being like, okay, working with citizen scientists, how do we do this? How do we navigate things? And then, and really having, you know, 10 or 15 years of long-term monitoring experience by then, you know, 
being able hopefully to have some value added with the marine reserves program that's just you know kind of in its infancy um their you know first sites were only enacted in 2012 so it's, it's not even 10 years and you know it's such a different beast so you take california's protocols and there's just things aren't gonna work um so it's been fun you know kind of that same challenge like how do we make this work how do we answer these basic questions how do we do this in like a completely different environment but you know the issues and the problems are all the same so for that it's like okay i've got some thoughts on that <laughs> i can provide some assistance if needed and then you know i think what drew me to this fellowship was sort of that mix between still working for an academic institution and working with academics, but also having another foot in sort of state management. So it's a really unique position to where, you know, you kind of get to, to work with both sides and kind of act as that liaison. Yeah. Because um, a lot of times, you know, if you've been in either environment for a long time, you, you know that they don't speak the same language necessarily, even though they're studying the same things. So like acting almost as like a science interpreter <laughs> between academics and, and state agencies has been a pretty challenging but fun part of the job too. It's true. And also sometimes questions that state agencies have and what are the priorities is not something that maybe a scientist have, you know, on their mind at this time and, you know, at this place in time. So having this communication as well and say like, hey, it's what we need, but we cannot really do it. So can you help with that? So I think having a liaison really helps to get things, you know, moving forward. Yeah. And it's so funny because when you really get down to it in a state agency, the questions are so fundamental. Right. So especially in Oregon, where we don't even have maps of the near shore, you know, habitats, we don't even know what's there half the time. So you're really going back to that step one of like characterizing the environment. And so when you go to academics and be like, okay, we want to know what fish are there and what invertebrates are there and what algae are there and in what proportions. And they're like, that's super boring. Like, you know, there's these other like much more complex questions that are so much more interesting that they could get funding for, you know, it's kind of, the fallacy that you can't get funding for simple questions anymore, but it's those simple questions that we need answers to in order to do any sort of management or conservation. So it's always fun trying to like work between those two and like, you know, force the academics into understanding that the simple things are the things that need to be answered. And you can do these other things in addition, but you have to do these things. And like, but we want to do these other things. You know? So it's like constantly, I feel like it's hurting cats at some point of just like constantly being like, okay, let's come back down to earth. Let's come back down. Like we still need to know what's there. It's like, you can do all these other things too. And like experiments and, yeah. and whatever, cause you know, like you see it and then I, you know, I'm subject to it too. Of being like, oh, now I, I have these 12 other questions. It's like, but we still need to answer these ones first. So, yeah. so it's been like super entertaining and fun. So we've ended up like having to contract a number of workout with, you know, postdocs and academics and stuff. And yeah, it's funny thinking back, like I was on that academic side working with state people. And now I'm on the state side working with academics and as like a state person, you're kind of beating your head against the wall, you know, before one as the academic version, I was like, Oh, 
gosh, you guys are so far behind. So, so it's just funny to like have a have a role reversal again. Yeah. And sort of go back to that my sort of more management roots. You're like, okay, like being able to wade through and then being able, you know, how how do we get everybody to do something in which everybody is at least a little bit happy? Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's funny, like I, I try to be an optimist, even though I'm an inner pessimist, but uh, some of my Noah Connor parts when I like describe some of it and they're like, oh, I like that, that, you know, turn of phrase where it's like, at least where you try and ensure that everyone gets at least a little bit of something. And they're like, you know, we just think about it as like, well, if everybody's unhappy, then we're doing our job. <laughs> and she's like, maybe, maybe we'll have to try and employ that optimism side. <laughs> It's like, it usually works better when you like get say like, well, here's like what you can do rather than like, here's all the things you can't do. Yeah. So. <laughs> no, it's true. And after find some figuring out, yeah, what's the end, you know, goal there? What the outcome? Like, do we want to have better management? What do you want to do related to fisheries, to the environment? So I'm like, okay, I guess we have to giving something it's true for like academia like you said it can be a little boring because also they have the pressure of having getting fundings that are like something that is innovative and also in order to get published so there are all those pressure as well that i can see how someone in academia wouldn't be interested but trying to find a compromise you know between all of that uh is really crucial yeah yeah it's been definitely entertaining so there's never a dull moment and then even now the marine reserves program is in the midst of writing a synthesis report so they've been legislatively mandated to write a 10-year synthesis report which means analyzing all the data that's been collected over the past 10 years and even now you know we have very specifically outlined our questions and it's still kind of herding cat situation like collaborators being like well i think we could do you know this figure and if we add in all these elements it's like no no like we just want this simple graph you know like this simple graph is is the component we need for this chapter we're like but if we added this it would be so much better it's like that will take another like couple weeks of work we don't have time <laughs> So, you know, figuring out what are the priorities, like one, just nailing down priority questions is so hard mm -hmm. um, and realizing that it's it's much harder than even like we think because we don't think about, you know, doing that sort of hypothesis based or like listening out those questions when you, you're getting into management. And then, you know, how do you tackle such a broad subject range and such a a broad dearth of tools that are used to collect information and how do you put all the puzzle pieces together and have something that's informative and it's like you know we have to come to the realization that like this document is not going to answer everybody's questions at that point like you know there's a lot of stuff that we want to do that just you're not physically going to have time right to do it given staff capacity and that kind of stuff so it's I think that's the hard part of the job in a management situation is like, what are those trade-offs and, and what do you have to shelve and, and, you know, how do you make those decisions? Because it's not just about the science anymore. It's, you know, capacity and budget and 
timelines and and all these other things personnel that have to fit in to that not just you know the research question right and however long it takes you to answer it takes you to answer it's like no we need this by february 10th (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's understanding you know academia and management work on such different time frames and budget cycles and all these things that you don't think about sort of when you're an academic you have like you know your grant cycle and and those types of things but then you can get another grant to like extend things but a lot of times you don't have that luxury for management based things especially when you know it's out of your control when you get somebody from like legislature or the governor being like we need this by next week (laughs) no for sure so that's been really like I want to say entertaining, um, but that's probably a very rosy term for <laughs> for what the reality is when those types of things come down from the top. And based on that experience, so having you know one foot in state management, one foot in academia, you've been in different agencies, knowing that you have basically a lot of experience in all that. Where would you like to go next? Are you like? Hmm, Academia would be nice. I'll go back to that. Back to or... French Polynesia. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you see? I mean, types of projects you would like to work on in the future? Yeah, it's been difficult for me because I think, you know, more that I see my interests and my sort of motivations are changing. Like, I think that's both with experience, but also maybe with age. You know, like scuba gear is getting harder to put on, especially (laughs) in Oregon conditions. So maybe I, you know, maybe I don't have that many years of diving left in me. Whereas, you know, my 20 year old self is like, dive all day, every day. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like those, those types of priorities change, you know, priorities about, you know, how much I want to travel versus being at home change. And so that kind of shapes a little bit in some sense where I think I want my career to go. But also I feel like it's kind of this overarching aspect of, I love academia and I love the questions. Um, But for me, it's, you know, more of a work-life balance. And I think it's a lifestyle and sort of a grind that I've realized I don't have in me, maybe (laughs) so much, as much as my other colleagues that are in academia. And... So it's like, I love the science aspect of it, but I've found this sort of niche where you can still be engaged in science and still sort of have that background in academia that can be so beneficial when you're moving more into like a management or conservation realm. So I think probably where I see my career going is that transition from like science and field work more to, to management hopefully not as much policy. <laughs> so that still scares me. Um, I'd read their deal with sharks and like politicians, but, or maybe they're one in the same, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think just, you know, my whole career has been spent, you know, not necessarily knowing where I'm going to go next. So I'm still happily willing for it to be sort of whatever the universe provides, I guess, in some sense, (laughs) wherever I see the next job opportunity, that looks great. Um, But, you know, probably less postdoc opportunity, more just like a career long-term position, but hopefully still in that 
intersection between, you know, science and management. So if I, if I had my optimal wish list, it would be continuing, you know, to have at least a toe dipped in the science realm uh, to combat, you know, more of me being moving into that management realm. Yeah. No, I'm wishing you the best on your next adventure. <laughs> yeah. And you never know where you're going to end up. Exactly. You know. I, I right. may be a tech back in Maria. Who knows? <laughs> no. Well, at least hopefully going there, you know, for a visit or vacation would be nice. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and on that note, um, because I guess we're getting close to, to this show, to this podcast today, um, any final thoughts or word that you would like to share with us? Because... Through this discussion, I feel like we traveled a lot. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> you made us dream of like warm waters or more like, I don't know, with Oregon, let's say like more cold than wild, but, you know, really diverse and rich in wildlife. Uh, yeah. So thank you for that. But anything else you would like to share with us? I guess just for everyone listening, you know, whether you're a grad student or more early career scientist, just don't limit yourself to opportunities and you know those opportunities that you get that may seem to be out of your wheelhouse a little bit that point in your career in your life is the time to make those leaps and and test those waters and I feel like you know doing that even though it maybe wasn't my intention has brought some of the most transformative experiences in my life and probably the most knowledge that I have been have gained has been from interactions with, you know, people or groups that I never set out to to deal with or that, you know, I would have probably avoided if I had the capacity to avoid dealing with commercial fishermen or or, you know, antagonistic people in in meetings and stuff. You know, my my first inclination is to run away from any sort of controversy, not uh, take it head first, but like realize everything is a learning opportunity. And I think in my career, there's never been a wrong turn or, you know, I've never done made a decision that is detrimental to my career. And I don't think there is one, you know, like your path is just what you make of it and, and everything, even if it's something that's completely different from what you anticipated is going to provide you experience. So I think it would be sort of that urging to people. It's like, always be curious, always, always be willing to learn and from the sources you think are the least likely to learn from. And then, you know, the, the last shout out or plug has got to be for the Oregon Marine Reserves. And uh, we're going through our synthesis and then um, there'll be sort of a, a big review next year. So just a little plug of, if you don't know anything about the Oregon Marine Reserves, uh, we have a pretty awesome website and a data visualizer and explorer that a colleague of mine is creating. So uh, go learn. You can see a lot of video and photo content where you can take a dive into the reserves without having to deal with all the craziness that we deal with. So <laughs> it's like our video content makes it look beautiful and it is a beautiful place. To visit underwater it's just you know those those days of perfect visibility are few and far between so it makes you cherish i guess cherish the little things in life a little bit more than you do which it's probably a metaphor for like like nothing's ever beautiful all the time so <laughs> when it is cherish those moments um 
but yeah, hopefully, you know, learn a little bit. I hope you know, our discussions will stoke people's curiosity in whatever realm it is. And uh, yeah, just everybody get out there with their eyes open. Yeah, no, thank you. I agree. And I'll make sure to share also the the website for the Oregon, you know, um, Razors. I do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I should check it out a little more myself. I've been there, but I should check out those, you know, videos and, and virtual dives. I'm really interested in that. So thank you so much, Corey. It was great to have you um, on this show and also to talk to you in person. I know. It was so awesome. great to see you in person. <laughs> it's been too long. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rising Sea Voices podcast. And thank you to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Costa News Today for hosting this show. If you would like to learn more about the Rising Sea Voices podcast and other podcasts on ESPN, go to Costa News Today. There, you can find more information on the guests that appear on my show. And be sure to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network wherever you get your pods. Also, you or someone you know could be my next guest. Email me at felicia at costonewstoday.com or DM me on Twitter at Fometa Short to send me your ideas. Thanks for listening and take care.